You're listening to an audio sermon from Redemption Church in Red Deer, Alberta. We exist to see lost people saved, saved people matured, and mature people multiplied, all to the glory of God. For more information about our church, visit us online at redemptionreddeer.ca. This morning we are, we are continuing in our study of the book of Luke. We are beginning to look at Luke chapter 3. So would you begin turning to Luke 3 this morning. We're going to be reading the first 14 verses. Um, and if you don't have a copy of God's word, I might, uh, yeah, Dave's running to the back. Fantastic. If you don't have a copy of God's word because you were in a rush to get out this morning and you forgot it at home, that's totally fine. Put your hand up. Uh, we want you to follow along. If you don't have a copy at all, because you don't own one, please take this one as a gift from us to you. We would love for you to take it home and read it. And and why do we say that? Well, because every single week I hope that you hear that we have absolutely nothing for you. We have absolutely nothing for you. God's Word does. It's why we sing God's Word. It's why we preach from God's Word. It's why the children's and youth ministries are founded upon God's Word. I'm sure you get the point right now that we have absolutely nothing for you this morning. Only God's Word does. And so if you haven't already, turn to Luke chapter 3. Do so now, and then would you stand with me as we read our passage for this morning. Luke chapter 3, verses 1 through 14, and it says this. In the fifteenth year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being the governor of Judea, and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, uh, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Eturia and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, that was a mouthful, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John the son of Zechariah in the wilderness, And he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of the one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low and the crooked shall become straight and the rough places shall become level ways and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. And he said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And so the crowds asked him, What then shall we do? And he answered them, Whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none, and whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than you are authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, And we, what shall we do? And he said to them, Do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation, and be content with your wages. May God bless the reading of his word to our souls this morning. You may have a seat. But as I said before, since we have absolutely nothing for you, since I don't have anything for you, um, it is important for us to continually go to the Lord and ask him to guide our time together. So would you bow your heads with me as we pray this morning? God, you are so gracious. You are so kind. And this passage uh, this week for me has just been um, such, a, such a blessing 
and so challenging. And so it is my prayer, Lord, that you would use me this morning to speak the truth that is found within your word and that we would all be better for it and that we would seek to live lives that honor and glorify you. We love you and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, as we look at our text this morning, one thing that we are going to see throughout it is that repentance is an urgent and non-negotiable requirement for authentic Christianity. Repentance is an urgent and non-negotiable requirement for authentic Christianity. In fact, a life that is void of repentance, which is a life that is willfully living in sin and searching for things to satisfy them that is other than Jesus Christ, is not an authentic Christian. If I were to tell you that I was Gandalf the Grey from Lord of the Rings, hopefully there's other people in here that are nerds like me. I love Lord of the Rings. Um, if I were to tell you that I was Gandalf the Grey, you'd probably look at me like I was absolutely crazy. Because for one, I, I'm too short. That's why I use this and not that one over there because it's too high for me. I'm too short. I don't have long gray hair. I don't have a long gray beard. I don't wear a wizard's hat. I don't carry a stick around with me all the time. And I certainly don't know how to use a stick for magic. In fact, the only proof that you could possibly have that maybe I am Gandalf the Grey is that I have four children that eat and are the size of hobbits. But that's probably about it. There is absolutely zero evidence that I am Gandalf the Grey. We are called as believers to bear fruit. And so one who genuinely repents and confesses their sin to the Lord will bear fruit. And so it would be just as foolish for you to say to me that I was Gandalf the Grey so as to say that one who is not bearing fruit is a believer. Because repentance is an urgent and non-negotiable requirement for authentic Christianity. Now, maybe you're sitting here and you're a little bit lost because you're like, this word repentance, I don't actually know how this is defined. I don't understand that. And so I think before we go any further, I think it's important for us to define what is repentance. Now, when I was growing up, repentance was just simply described as a change of direction. That was it. It was, I'm walking this way towards my sin, and I'm turning, and I'm walking this way to the Lord. Now, that definition is actually incomplete. We're not wrong describing it that way. We're not wrong in saying it's a change of direction, but the change of direction merely talks about the, the action and, and doesn't talk about the heart that needs to accompany that. You see, repentance is a change of mind. It is a change of heart. It is, it is a change of allegiance. It is agreeing with the Lord to say that sin is disgusting that you don't want to have any part of it and that you want to turn away from it and that you want to do everything that you can in your power with the strength that the Lord provides to follow after the Lord, to fix your gaze upon the Savior because he is the most beautiful thing that you've ever seen and he is the greatest treasure that you will ever have. And although the most drastic and the most noticeable 
action of repentance happens at the moment of salvation when one turns directly from their sin and sees the Lord and repents there. It is, it is a, a lifestyle that needs to happen in the life of a believer. Why? Because we are so prone to be walking towards uh, the Lord and all of a sudden we want to look back over our shoulder thinking that this sin that we were uh, enslaved to is more satisfying than Jesus. But it's wrong. That's not right at all. Jesus is far more satisfying than any sin and so we need to be constantly reminded that we are to live a life of repentance and that Jesus is the only one who is worth pursuing. And this is why Wayne Grudem has defined repentance as this. It is a heartfelt sorrow for sin, a renouncing of it, and a sincere commitment to forsake it and to walk in obedience to Christ. I'm going to say that again a heartfelt sorrow for sin, a renouncing of it, and a sincere commitment to forsake it and to walk in obedience to Christ. So much more than just turning around. So now that we have our foundation, now we're going to dig into our text. And we're going to see just why repentance is one of our major themes today. And so our first point for this morning is spirit-filled aim. Spirit-filled aim. So you'll notice as we've already laughed at, that there's quite a few names here that are very difficult to pronounce. Um, in fact, the only way that you are supposed to do that is with confidence, because then nobody knows if you're wrong or not. So, um, and, and we've already established in our study of the book of Luke that Luke is a doctor, and he's very detail-oriented. And so he's written down these names, guided by the Holy Spirit, and, and so they're just as important as the rest of our text. So what do these names tell us? Well, they're giving us a little bit of a timeline. So Herod the Great was the one who was reigning at the time that both Jesus and John the Baptist were born. But this is not the Herod that is in our text this morning. The Herod that is in our text is actually his son. This is a whole new monarch structure. And so this is Herod Antipas. And, and given the different documentations of when uh, Tiberius was the one that started to reign, depend on whether or not you looked at one calendar or the other or which document you read, our, our best estimate of when this is taking place is anywhere between the years 26 AD to 29 AD. And we know also that John the Baptist was born around 6 BC, so this puts us, um, John, in his early 30s. It also tells us that this is actually happening roughly 20 years after what Pastor Chris read for us last week when Jesus was a boy in the temple. Now John, John the Baptist, he's kind of a little bit of a weird dude. Uh, in, in Luke 1 verse 80, it says that um, he was living in the wilderness up until the day of his public appearance. And Luke doesn't really go much deeper into the details about who John the Baptist is. Um, that's why we look at, um, that we look at other, uh, other Gospels. And uh, so we know that John is in the wilderness. In the wilderness, now when I was growing up, I, I lived in Ontario, and I, I enjoyed the, what I thought to be wilderness. It's like the middle of nowhere, but there's tons of trees, there's lakes, there's hills, there's caves, there's all those kind of things. That's what I was thinking of when I heard wilderness but that's not what's being referred to here in fact wilderness that is being referred to here is a desert so John is actually growing up in a dry harsh and unforgiving environment and he's clothed with camel's hair and his food is like honey nut grasshoppers 
You know, let's, let's face it, if you're eating locusts, you're going to have to dip it into something to disguise the taste. I certainly wanna wa- wouldn't want to eat that. And, and, and Luke's gospel is taking us through these, these completely obscure ways for Christ to come and for the way to be prepared for him to be here. We see Jesus come from a town in the middle of nowhere, the town of Nazareth, that nobody really knows the, the, the correct location for and not many people have heard of it. And then we see him being born not in Jerusalem but outside of Jerusalem in another town called Bethlehem. And at that, he's born in a stable and, and he's laid to rest inside the feeding trough where animals eat from. Okay, this is all very strange. And and the first people that the angels proclaim the birth of Jesus to is the scum of the earth. It is shepherds. And now, now we're having the proclamation of somebody coming to prepare the way of the Lord. And he lives in the wilderness. And and he probably looks and he smells like a camel. And he's outside of the the cultural epicenter. He's He's around the Jordan. He's not in any big city. I don't know about you, but there are often times when I'm, when I'm walking through town or um, I'm in a big city or whatever, when I'm watching people, sometimes I'm prone to judge people just by the way that they look. Now, God's word tells us that we're not to do that, that we look at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart, and we should be looking at the heart. But I would, if I was present during this time, and I see this guy living in the wilderness that's wearing weird clothes, and that's eating weird food, I would be less inclined to listen to what he had to say. And yet, all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all four of them attribute the prophecy in Isaiah chapter 40 about the voice crying in the wilderness to be about John the Baptist. And remember, when when the angel is talking with Zechariah, telling him what John is going to be like, he says uh, in Luke 1, 15 to 17, he says that, that John is going to be great before the Lord, that John is going to be filled with the Holy Spirit, and that he was going to turn the hearts of many to the Lord, and in doing so, he is going to make the people prepared to listen to Jesus. The word of the Lord here comes to John, and he is faithful in following in obedience to accomplish what his purpose is. This is, this is a pretty crazy picture for us. Some crazy looking guy being the voice of the one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Now Luke's gospel also has the longest quote from Isaiah chapter 40. All the other ones are, are much shorter. But verse 5 here is actually really neat and gives us a little bit more context into what John's purpose and how they would understand this. So verse 5 says this, Every valley shall be filled, and every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall become straight, and the rough places shall become level ways. So what this is talking about, when Isaiah wrote this, 
it was common practice when a monarch was traveling from one location to another that they would have a delegation of men go before them and, in essence, prepare the way. They would go to the roads and say, there's a pothole, I'm going to fill it, there's a big rock that's going to cause something to tip over, get rid of that, the tree's in the way. You know what, this road kind of goes a little bit like this, a little too much, and so we want to make it straight, so we're going to do that. And so as they're doing it, I can imagine that there's other people that are traveling from point A to point B as well, and they might be coming and saying, why are you doing this? Why are you filling the potholes here? Why are you removing the trees? And what would their response be? Well, we're doing it because the king is coming. Now, John isn't going around the Jordan right now fixing roads. That's not what he's doing. But John is filling in things like potholes of misunderstanding. He's removing deadfall of legalism. And he's doing it so that all flesh shall see the salvation of God. And how specifically did he do it? Well, he, he came by proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Now, when we're talking about the baptism of repentance, this is, this is not saying that, that dunking underwater was absolutely necessary to be saved. It is not necessary for the forgiveness of sins. Baptism does not save. Let's be very clear on that. Baptism does not save. Now, for us, baptism is, is a little different. Here, it was, it was a sign of repentance. It, it is out with the old and in with the new. And in some ways, our meaning is the same right now, but there's greater symbolism now that we're on this side of the cross in that the going down into the water represents the death, burial, and then resurrection of Jesus Christ. And we are having a baptism service coming up soon. And if you have yet to be baptized, and if you have not followed in obedience, if you have professed Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, the next step is to be baptized. And if you haven't done that yet, then come and talk to one of the leaders, and we would be happy to point you in the right direction. Pastor Chris is not here right now. Talk with myself, talk with Dave or Rob, and we'd be happy to make sure that you are um, meeting with Pastor Chris to talk more about what that would look like. But this baptism that John is performing is a sign of repentance. It is an outward sign of an inward reality. But as we are going to see in verses 7 through 9, that that many people who were coming to be baptized, this was more of an outward sign of an inward pride. It was all the works of the flesh, which brings us into our second point this morning, and that is uh, a stern address. Look at verse 7. Verse 7 says, And he said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers. The first words that Luke records out of the mouth of John the Baptist, you brood of vipers. Now, when I first thought, uh, read this, I was, I was shocked. I was like, this is a pretty generalized comment for a large crowd that has come and, and it can't be that everybody needs to hear this. And that, and that is why it is so good for us to look at the other Gospels. Because Matthew's Gospel actually says that John is talking to the Pharisees and the Sadducees when he says this. But that's not to say that they're the only ones that needed to hear it. There were probably other people there that needed to hear this, this challenge of their legalism. You brood of vipers. And for them, they, they were probably very much affected being called the name of an animal that was synonymous with Satan. And now that he's got their attention, he asks the question, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? 
In other words, do, do, you think, do you think that you can avoid the burning wrath of God just because you are here to be baptized? Now, we know the Pharisees were pretty rigid in their rel- religiosity. They were all about doing A, B, and C in order to earn favor with God. But there was this huge disconnect that they had between their head and their hearts. They, they had all the knowledge. They kept all the rules. They, they had all the feasts. They honored the Sabbath. They performed all sorts of ritual offerings. But in reality, it was just actions. Their hearts were not in it. Listen to what the Lord says in Isaiah 29, verse 13. It says this, And the Lord said, Because this people draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips while their hearts are far from me, and their fear of me is a commandment taught by men. That last line kind of hit a little hard this past week. Their, their fear of me is a commandment taught by men. Not a genuine fear. The, uh, the New American Standard Bible says it this way. The reverent, their reverence of me, for me, consists of tradition learned by rote. But rote means a mechanical repetition. This is, this is a going through the motions. This is a works-based righteousness. And John is confronting them on something that the Lord absolutely hates, which is a hypocritical religion. So flocks of people are here to be baptized by John, but not all of them came because their lives were changed. Some of them came simply because they wanted a fire insurance. They didn't want the punishment And they thought that simply by being baptized, they were going to avoid the wrath that was coming. It was lip service. And then John tells them that they need to be bearing fruit. And that the fruit that they are to bear is a result of genuine repentance. Now something else that that we are prone to do is we are prone to think that, that our lineage or our family and our parents somehow play a role in our own personal salvation. Not at all. Just because mom and dad come to church and just because mom and dad are saved, you don't inherit that salvation. Salvation is between you and the Lord. And the religious leaders here, are, they're holding on to their, their Jewish heritage. They're, they're holding on to the salvation that they think comes from the Lord simply because they can say, we're from the family of Abraham. And John basically says here, yeah, God does keep his promises. God did promise to Abraham that he was going to make, them a, make him the father of many nations, but he doesn't need you to do it. He is just as able to raise children from the rocks that are here with us right now to be children for Abraham. I think he's being pretty clear that you cannot earn your way into God's family by doing works or by being part of a certain family, or tracing your family line all the way back to Abraham. But when your life is filled and defined by repentance, you will show that you are a part of God's family by doing those same things. Then John gives us an incredible warning, showing us that the call to repentance is both urgent and non-negotiable. Look at verse 9. Verse 9 says this, Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and is thrown into the fire. It is urgent now because even now the axe is laid at the root of the trees. 
and it is non-negotiable because no repentance means no fruit or bad fruit. And no fruit or bad fruit means that the tree is going to be cut down and the tree is going to be thrown into the fire. And the fire is not eternity with Christ. A life that is lived simply going through the motions, a life that is putting more trust and more faith into, I've said a prayer and I wrote a a date down in my Bible, but I'm going to continue living the life that I want to live, is a life that is void of repentance. It is a life that is not bearing fruit. There's, There's no change of mind. There's no change of desire. There's no heartfelt sorrow for sin. Nowhere in God's word does it say, if you say a specific prayer, that you can keep living the way that you want to. You cannot die to sin and still live it, live in it. God's word demands a complete surrender. Now, don't get me wrong. If you know the date that you professed faith in Jesus Christ, that's awesome. In fact, my wife and I were sitting down for coffee, our morning coffee this past week, and she looks at me and she goes, it's been 20 years today that I gave my life to the Lord. And we rejoiced together. I don't know the date that I gave my life. I remember where I was sitting. I remember who I was talking to. I remember, I think it was sometime in February. Um, But that's all I know. But what's more important than knowing the date, the time, or the place of whether or not you professed faith in Jesus is continuing to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Because bearing fruit is an inevitable response to genuine repentance. Now, I, I couldn't remember if I've used this analogy here before, and so if I have, bear with me. It's a great analogy. I know the youth know exactly what it is, and that is, I'm going to ask you a simple question, and I want you to answer. Um, you can answer in your mind, but is, have I been hit by a train? <laughs> That's all right, Judy. I have, I, the answer is no. Why is the answer no? Well, first and foremost, I'm still here. I'm not dead, okay? But even if I survive being hit by a train, I don't have any scars. Um, I still have full use of my my legs and my arm, and the last one might be a matter of public opinion, but my face isn't, like, deformed or anything like that, and so by, by all accounts, I have not been hit by a train, because it is impossible for you to encounter such a magnificent force and remain unchanged. Have you drawn the connection yet? It is impossible for you to encounter the magnificent force of the grace of God and remain unchanged. It is not possible. That is why when there is genuine repentance, it results in professing faith in Christ. Repentance and faith go hand in hand. Listen to this quote from Wayne Grudem. It says this, Repentance and faith are really two sides of the same coin. For when I genuinely renounce and forsake my sin, I then turn in faith to Christ, trusting in him alone for my salvation. And this initial repentance and faith provides a pattern for ongoing heart attitudes of repentance and faith that continue for the rest of a Christian's life. As Paul writes in Colossians chapter 2, verse 6, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. If I was hit by a train there would be evidence and it would be something that would last for the remainder of the time that I was here. If you encounter the grace of God, you will have 
evidence in your life that will remain until the time that you go and spend eternity with him. We are to perform deeds in keeping with repentance. Paul even preaches that in Acts chapter 26. They should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with repentance. And so the question I have for you is, are you bearing fruit? Are you bearing fruit that proves that you have turned to Christ, that proves that you have repented? But some of us here in this morning might be in the same boat as the ones that John is talking to, that, that who he's confronting. Maybe there are some of you here this morning that are simply going through the motions, that you're trying to earn favor with God, that you're trying to be good enough, thinking that just because you come to church every single Sunday and you've been doing that for the majority of your life, that you're saved, but you've yet to bow the knee to Jesus. You don't see how grievous your sin is before the Lord, Or maybe you're just so cold to your sin that you don't care because it's what you want. Maybe you don't think that what you're doing is sin at all. What is sin? What is it that you have in your life that you need to repent of? Well, sin is the works of the flesh. It is things that are contrary to the Spirit, things that God detests, things that God hates. Galatians chapter 5, verses 19 through 21, I'm going to read, and although it is a very long and lengthy list, it is most certainly not exhaustive. It says this, Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissension, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. The axe is laid at the root of the tree and those trees that produce this type of fruit are the trees that are going to be thrown into the fire. If you are not in the Lord, if you are giving your life to the works of the flesh that is listed here, including the one that you're probably thinking about that's not listed here, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. You are the tree that is being chopped down and going to be thrown into the fire. And what this means is that you are going to be spending an eternity away from Christ unless you repent and turn from your sin and put your faith in Jesus. If you are habitually looking at pornography and you think it's okay and that's what you want, and you continue to seek after it, and you don't care what it means for your eternal state, that is you giving into the works of the flesh, and that is a life that is void of repentance. If you go to the bar, and you're drinking too much, or you're bringing it into your home, and you're drinking too much, you're living in the flesh. If you are constantly living in the want, if you are unsatisfied with what you have because you see what other people have and all you do is you want more and more and more and all you're doing is going out and trying to buy those things to satisfy because they're not Jesus, if you're continuing to do that, that's living in the flesh. A life that habitually chooses the flesh over Jesus Christ is a life that is void of repentance. It is a life that will not inherit the kingdom of God. It is a life of a tree that will be thrown into the fire. 
Have you ever done anything like those things? Those are pretty big ones. Let's bring it more simple for us. Have you ever told a lie? The answer is yes. If you're saying no right now, the answer is yes. That's a lie. We have all sinned. We have all fallen short of the glory of God. And Romans chapter 6 verse 23 tells us that the wages of sin is death. If you, if you were in a courtroom because you had committed a crime and you are on trial and there is undeniable proof that you were at fault. I'm talking about like video, uh, video footage at like 8K resolution where you can actually hear the audio and hear what's going on. There's DNA proof. You have three eyewitness testimonies. Your fingerprints are everywhere. And just to solidify this so you understand it's undeniable, there is you walking up to the camera saying, hey, my name is Josh Gosen. This is where I live and I'm the one that did it, okay? Undeniable proof that you are guilty there would be no problem for the judge to say, guilty. Absolutely not. In fact, it probably wouldn't even go to trial. The Bible is abundantly clear that the wages for our sin, the wages for our sin is death. The penalty for our sin, what we need to pay as a result of our sin is death. It's not this no longer existing type of death. It's not, I've died here on this earth and my consciousness is completely gone and it doesn't matter. This type of death that is referred to is a forever out of the loving presence of God and underneath his wrath for all of eternity because we've been given souls that last for eternity. The Bible often describes hell as a place of of a lake of fire. It is unpleasant. It's, It's weeping and gnashing of teeth. And without Christ, that is where every single one of us is headed. Now imagine, put yourself back in that courtroom, but no longer on trial. Say that you're the person that is inside the courtroom and you're watching all of this unfold and the person that is at front is responsible for killing somebody that is incredibly dear to you. And the judge is sitting on there and he sees all of this proof. He sees all the undeniable proof that the person sitting beside him is the one who is responsible for this act. And the judge looks at him and says, you know what, I'm feeling a little generous today. Don't worry about paying anything. You can go off scot-free. You'd probably be sitting in that courtroom. You'd be outraged. You'd be thinking, justice? Justice needs to be served. And you'd be right. And if God left sin alone, if God didn't deal with sin, then he wouldn't be just, he wouldn't be loving, and he most certainly wouldn't be God. Because justice must be served. Because our sin, our sin separates us from God. There is this vast chasm that is between us and attempting to try to spend eternity with a holy God. And no matter what we do, no matter how many good works we try to do during our days, no matter no matter what we try to do, we will never bridge that gap. It would be like trying to jump from here all the way over to Africa in one jump, and most of us wouldn't be able to get off the front step. It's absolutely impossible. And this is where the gospel comes in. You see, you see God knew that this gap couldn't be filled. He knew that we couldn't do it by our own efforts. He knew that we were absolutely hopeless because we are guilty beyond a shadow of a doubt and we are destined for an eternity away from the Lord 
So what did God do? Well, Romans chapter 5, verses 6 and 8 says this. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person would one, one would dare even to die. Think about that for a second. Would you die for your spouse? Most of us would love to say, absolutely, I would. Most of us won't know unless we're ever in that situation. But would you die for someone who just killed your spouse? Would you die for someone who's known for being a lying, thieving adulterer? And the verse continues on after this. What does it say? It says this, But God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still enemies of God, while we still hated him, while we wanted absolutely nothing to do with him, he died for us. He provided that way, and Jesus is that way, and the wages of sin is death, and he paid that penalty. He shed his blood on the cross and provided a way across that chasm. That The gospel isn't a cruel story because some egotistical authoritarian God was mean and didn't create many ways to spend eternity with him. No, the, the gospel is a magnificent and loving story because a God who was well within his rights to allow every last one of us to spend an eternity away from him instead gave us one way. He loved us so much that he gave his one, his only son, Jesus Christ, to die for our wrongdoings. He walked into that courtroom. He saw the proof of the undeniable guilt. And he said, what's the penalty? The penalty is death. I'll take it. Why? Because I love you. And the gavel slams and the verdict is in. And that's when we get to walk out free because of the blood of Jesus. And Romans 10 verse 9 says this, if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord and that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. This Jesus is the one who is full of grace. He is full of mercy and he is absolutely ready to forgive you if you confess your sins. He is both faithful, meaning he will do it, and just, meaning he's allowed to do it to forgive you of your sins. That is the gospel. And when the gospel, when this story is fully grasped, when we have a great understanding of the irresistible grace of our Lord Jesus, when you see your sin in light of a holy God, you will have a heartfelt sorrow over your sin. You will want to renounce it, and you will want to make a commitment to run away from that sin and to walk in obedience to Jesus, because your life will be radically different, because repentance comes with fruit. But the call is urgent. The call is now. If you aren't saved here this morning, if you don't know the Lord, if you have yet to bow your knee to Jesus, at this moment it's not too late because you're here. But I can't speak for what's going to happen the moment that you walk out of these doors. I don't know if you're going to get into a, a, a ridiculous car accident. I don't know if you're going to have a heart attack as you sit at the lunch table. 
The time is now. Because there will be a day that is too late. And that day that's going to be too late is the day that you're going to stand before the judgment throne of God and you're going to know that you made the wrong choice. The time is now. Now we're moving into our final point, specific application. Specific application. We see the, the progression of John's preaching of the baptism of repentance has resulted in people wanting to turn from their sin. And so they begin asking, well, then what do we do? How, how do I bear fruit? So if you have genuinely repented, how do you bear fruit? What does it look like? Verses 10 through 14, the crowds first asked, what shall we do? And he answered, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. Whoever has food is to do likewise. This first call is, is to be generous. A result of repentance is that you are generous. It means that you give out of your abundance. We all have enough. Because there are probably, everybody here probably has clothes inside their closet that they haven't worn for a long time. They're just hanging there and they're taking up space. Most of us probably grow out grocery shopping for the week and at the end of the week we haven't eaten all the food that we've bought and so it goes into the garbage. It doesn't take very long to walk around our own city here in Red Deer to see that there are a lot of people that could use the abundance that we have that we need to give. James 2 verses 15 to 17 says this, If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. You have countless opportunities in our city to figure out if you have extra sweaters, especially when it was so cold last week, to bring those and give them to the people in Red Deer who have a need. If you are in our church this morning and you have a need like that, you don't have enough sweaters, your kids don't have blankets, I can speak for my family right now, we have extra, we'd be more than happy to give them to you. The second way that we bear fruit here in our passage is to be honest and deal with integrity. Look at beginning at verse 12. The tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Go, Collect no more than you are authorized to do. They are called to be honest. They are called to deal with integrity. They're, they're not to look for selfishly created benefits. But notice here, this, this fruit is for the tax collectors. They are called to be honest. But we are still called to pay that which we're due. No matter how much we disagree with it, it's time soon to be filing our taxes. We need to be honest. If we've earned extra money, you have to claim it. That's what God's word tells us to do. So we have to be generous. We'll be honest. And our last application is in verse 14. It says, soldiers also asked him, and we, what shall we do? And he said to them, do not extort money from anyone by threats or false accusation and be content with your wages. Don't take advantage of your position. Don't take advantage of those who are around you. Don't live a life of entitlement. Speak truthfully. Don't, don't change the story around so that it makes you look better or it helps you to get what you want. The soldiers here in, in our passage, they literally shook people down for money. And it was largely because they weren't satisfied with the wages that they were paid. They thought they deserved more. 
And so John was telling them, well, if you're content with your wages, if you're satisfied with what you're paid, then there's less of a need for you to go and try to take money from somebody else. So these are, these are three fruits that come as a result of repentance. These are, these are three things that you can do, as Paul says, to keep with repentance by doing these deeds. And there's, there's many more. But what is, what is our first step this morning? Our first step is repentance. And so I want to jump back right now because I think it's just so crucial for us to understand that the bearing of this fruit comes from a change of heart, comes from a heartfelt sorrow for sin, a renouncing of it, and a sincere commitment to forsake it and to walk in obedience to Christ. It is a lifestyle change. It is something that continues from the moment of salvation until the moment we enter into eternity with the Lord. This means that we're broken on, of our sin, that, we, that we, we turn from it and we seek not to turn back to it because you don't want to continue in it. It's not, it's not meaning that we need to be perfect. Please don't hear that this morning because I'm far from it. But it's our attitudes of repentance when we do slip up. So it means that if you are somebody who is stuck looking at trash, looking at garbage on the computer, it's time to figure out how to stop doing that. It's time to ask somebody to help put a software on your computer that's going to hold you accountable. Dare I even say, maybe it's just time to get rid of the computer. Maybe it's time to get rid of your smartphone. That's just something that the culture has told us that we need. We don't. What's more important? Is it more important for you to waste time on a screen, scrolling around, thinking that you can be strong enough when that certain ad comes up or something that leads you down a path that you don't want to go down? Or is it more important for you to live righteously and pursue holy living? If you're struggling with alcohol, stop going to the bar. Stop drinking and ask for accountability. If you're struggling in the want, if you constantly feel unsatisfied and you're trying to fill that void by buying things, maybe it's time to stop going to the mall. Maybe it's time to get off Amazon, cut up your cards, whatever you need to do to be satisfied in Jesus. Ask for accountability. I've said that three times now because it's important to know that we do not walk this walk alone. There are so many people here in this building that would love to walk alongside you to encourage you, and to help you win this battle. But in the same way, however, that there are those in the crowd that John is speaking to that needed somebody who was loving enough to call them out on their legalism, to call them out on our workspace salvation, maybe you have somebody that's calling you out on your sin. Maybe you need that. And if they do that, respond with humility. Don't respond with pride. Don't think you are right. Don't respond in anger. Don't respond in denial. And most certainly don't glaze over the loving rebuke, which is very difficult to do for this person. Don't glaze over it so that they finish talking and get out of your hair so that you can continue living the life that you want to. And if somebody does call you out 
and you think that the majority of what they've called you out on is false, still respond in humility. Take a look back at what they're saying. Maybe there's a grain of truth in there. And maybe you need to recognize that that grain of truth that they're calling out is still enough to separate you from the Lord and still something that you need to be absolutely broken over and that you need to repent of and turn to Jesus and confess it to a loving God who is, as we've said, just and able to forgive you of your sins, to repent of your ways and to seek to remove it from your life. Worship team, if you would join me um, up here now. Now, for those of you who may be not struggling with some of the things that I've listed above or some of the things that are not in a list uh, that is found in Galatians chapter 5, remember that we are kind of the ones that have put these different levels of sin and thinking that one thing is more serious than the other. While, while certain sins most certainly have a greater earthly consequence, they are all on the same playing field. They all separate us from God. Lying is no less serious than murder or adultery. And I guarantee you right now that most of you probably are completely aware of the sin that you are struggling with at this very moment. And so my question for you this morning is when was the last time that you were broken over your sin? When was the last time you had a heartfelt sorrow for your sin? When you were weeping over it? When was the last time that you, you grieved over that small thought of anger that never exited your mouth and so nobody ever heard it, nobody would ever know the difference? When was the last time that you grieved over that? When was the last time that you grieved over that look that lasted slightly longer than it should have even though nobody else was there to see you watching? When was the last time that you grieved over the thought that you entertained in your mind for far too long? Or maybe the gossip that you shared disguised as a prayer request. When was the last time you grieved over these things? Because none of us is without sin here this morning. What sin is in your life that you need to bring before the Lord? So this morning, we have such a privilege. We have a privilege to celebrate the, uh, the Lord's Supper by taking communion together. What a great time that we have right now to have a moment of reflection on our lives. Now, 1 Corinthians chapter 11 tells us that we need to examine ourselves before we take communion. So maybe you can't see your, your sin right now, and if you can't, I would challenge you to bow your heads and to ask God to reveal it to you, to ask Him to say, this is what you're struggling with, and this is where I need to change right now. God's word also is very clear that, um, that the Lord's Supper is for those who profess faith in Jesus. It is for believers only. There is, there is great consequences if you don't know the Lord and you partake in the Lord's Supper. And so if that's you this morning, if you don't know the Lord, please, please don't come and receive it. You won't be judged for that. It's okay. If you have a conflict between, between you and a brother and sister in Christ, now is the time to make it right. If they're here this morning, I would challenge you, get up out of your seat and go find them. Now is the time. Seek forgiveness. And so Nate's going to play for us for a little while. And as he does, 
Let's have a moment of reflection before Dave comes to lead us in communion. But confess your sin before the Lord. And after a, a few moments of reflection, come forward to receive the elements this morning.